Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast, the other show on KGRA Digital Broadcasting. Do you know what? I need to kick off with an apology for a change, don't I, Dan? So last week, if you were there for the premiere, then you may have noticed that we sent in the wrong video. I say we, I mean me. So apologies, anyone who had to go back and watch it again, but the complete and proper episode is now up there with the interview with Tim McMillan, which you absolutely should go and watch as well. On the the main podcast this week, just to give that a shout out, we have a fantastic interview with Kurt Jaimungo of the Theories of Everything podcast. I enjoyed that interview. Uh, Kurt's a great mind, great thinker. Really interesting to see someone like him get involved in this uh, conversation please go and check that one out. I really enjoyed it as well. And obviously check out Theories of Everything. On the show we have for you though today, we have an extended interview with Jay Christopher King. You may or may not be aware, but Jay was one of the names Ralph Blumenthal mentioned in his article on the debrief. He is an experiencer himself, and we talk about him, him starting the experiencer group, which is at for experiencers on Twitter. He will discuss his own lifelong experiences, you know, growing up with various different paranormal phenomena happening around him. And, you know, we talk about what it's like to be an experiencer. So that's coming up. So stick around. Hopefully it's not after four minutes. You're not thinking of leaving. Um, We also are going to have a little discussion off the back of that. But also we're going to talk about a new book that is just about to be published on Amazon.co.uk or it's already out depending where you are in the world. I said Amazon.co.uk. Other Amazons are, of course, available. .com, .fr, .it, all the countries' Amazons. .au. I mean, we could list them all, but yeah, or any local bookseller probably as well. You don't have to just buy off Amazon. We're not getting paid from them. Don't need to talk about them. Um, We've got an interesting (laughs) listener point uh, from Noel, one of the listeners, to talk about. And then we're going to finish off just having a little bit of a discussion on, I suppose, one of the big conversations recently has been about the Rubber Duck UAP video, hasn't it? So we're just going to share some further thoughts on that, given it's, it's kind of hogged the headlines in the last week or so since that was announced, typed, leaked, uploaded, re-uploaded, and then broken down, um, taken offline, and everything in between as well. So that's going to be the show this week, so really looking forward to it. First up, we're going to have the interview with Jay Christopher King. Uh, He is one of the co-founders of the Experiencer Group, like I say, himself a lifelong experiencer. Dan, before we throw to that, would you classify yourself as an experiencer? We've talked about some various bits and pieces on the podcast at different times, but it, it's a very fine line, I think. People, and especially experiencers, seem to say between someone who has seen the phenomena or has had, you know, sightings of the phenomena to to being a true experiencer. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, it It's a question I actually have trouble answering because... In previous conversations, you know, we've gone over some of the weirdness in my past and it, it seemed to have been around me as I've grown up. Um, and, and I have some memories that, you know, I kind of narrow my eyes at in a suspecting way and think, wow, you know, this really sounds like a lot of these experiences in that debrief article, but I'm not comfortable saying yes to it. You know, it could just be a child's mind. I, I have to kind of... Yeah you know, admit my bias there, because I've been into UFOs since I was like two, three, right? So, yeah. you know, it could have just been kid me with a good imagination. 
Yeah, and you know what's funny? I, I talked about this, and on the actual podcast itself, if you check out again, subscribe to that UFO podcast, we have done a series of interviews that will be coming up with other experiencers, some of which are part of the experiencer group and others not. But again, sharing their own individual stories, their own traumas at times, difficulties in dealing with this phenomenon as well. So again, please check those out. But experiencers, they are people who at the end of the day they are people they are living with usually something that has a massive impact and effect on their entire life you know their everyday life short term and long term as well so what we'll do is we'll throw over to jay and he will share his story with you the listeners and we'll come back and talk through it dan Joining me for the third show in our Experiencer series, I have one of the founders of the Experiencer Group, Jay Christopher King. Jay, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me. This has been uh, great for me to do. As I release these, I'll break the fourth wall here of podcasting. It's I've been recording these now for just over an hour, and I've had a couple of conversations, and they've been they've been incredible to hear. The listeners have heard them over the course of a few days or a week or so as they've been released, and I hope people have got as much from them as I have speaking to the experiencers themselves. And again, we're we're going to be speaking to yourself now too. So I'm I'm looking forward to this, Jane. Appreciate you giving us your time, and also you helping me set these up because you've been doing some of the the middleman work for me as well to reach out to some of your colleagues oh it's my pleasure i think the the, the outreach element and people hearing uh people hearing this is really important uh for other experiencers and for people that haven't had these experiences as well uh i, I hope for more dialogue like this in the future so thanks yeah, no, I'm, I'm more than open to it. And uh, let, let's get straight into it, Jay. Now, Jay, if you can give people just a little bit about of your background and a bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I, just as an introduction, I'm a community manager. And as you said, I'm a co-founder of the Experiencer Group, along with Stuart Davis and Kirsten Blackburn. The Experiencer Group is a private member site dedicated to support, curiosity, and community for people who've had anomalous events of all kinds. So that could be UFO and ET experiencers, also near-death experiencers, out-of-body, precognition, all forms of anomalous encounters. Uh, we realized that, that this was absolutely necessary. Um, there, there are so few resources, places where people can share privately and compare notes. Um, there's so, there are a lot of sites out there that cover these topics. But even, say, when I was in my 20s and looking around, it was things like Above Top Secret and, and Project Avalon. And we all know that there can be positive conversations that can happen in that kind of open framework. But there can also be trolls. And these conversations, especially about contact cases, can get really toxic really quickly. So um, before that, I, I mainly... Uh, was a TV writer and producer, mainly for some uh, like the Discovery Channel and and some of its properties, doing uh, food shows and and action adventure shows and and things like that. And and uh, I enjoyed it, but uh, it's a that's it, a very young person's game. So <laughs> I uh, I realized that my heart was more in in doing things like this, and it was necessary. No, that's awesome. Now, listen, let's take uh, the listeners back. You started having your experiences as uh, experiences as we have heard from other experiencers at a very young age. What was the, the first time you remember having any sort of abnormal experience or anomalous experience? 
Sure. It's a strange one. Um, and I, and I think it's important to mention that a lot of experiencers have more than one modality and that used to be a really taboo topic to bring up and people were automatically discounted if they had more than one modality or more than one point of contact. And I think that a lot of data was being left out in the old days because of that. So I embrace yourselves. Spoiler alert. This is kind of a strange one. Um, my first, my very first experience that I can recall was when I was about four years old. I was in my bedroom in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Uh, it was daytime, and I was shoving a plastic bin of toys across the floor uh, when two semi-translucent, strange figures like just blipped into the room, just in front of me and to the left. And to my perception, they were tall and skinny, bipedal-looking forms that actually looked really similar to the old effect from the movie Predator or from Abyss, that kind of like water droplet effect that that uh, <laughs> that like the Predator and the <laughs> yeah. and those creatures. Yeah, have. yeah. Um, and but I'm 42 though, so those movies hadn't come out yet. Uh, dating myself a little bit. But so the look was similar to that. And it had this kind of like weird, wavering, vibrating look happening in the air. Maybe they were what some people refer to as light or energy beings. I have no idea. I just know that they established this mental connection really quickly somehow and, and expressed this sense of warmth and love, honestly. And as I recall, something about how they were visiting right then because it would be more difficult later somehow. And then there was some weird uh, nonverbal exchange, just this shift of energy that I felt. And then within about a minute, they just blipped right out again. And the thing is, like, it's, it's stuck out and it's one of these like fragmentary experiences but it's from such a young age, you know, I mean, from that age, like pretty much all I remember are these, Oh shit moments. These like uh, me touching a hot water pipe and burning my hand, right. Or falling down and skinning my knee, that kind of stuff. And for whatever reason, this memory of those beings, like it still exists in, in my conscious recall. And I think part of it might be because it ranked in Somehow, maybe, I don't know, but maybe the brain has some kind of filtering device early on, some kind of evolutionary imperative to record these moments that are that are some initial surprise or maybe there's danger involved or something like that. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not a, I'm not a scientist. No, no, <laughs> I don't I'm, study the brain, but you know. e- even like go, going into like movie history and TV history, you always see like the sixth sense and how kids do have more in, intuitiveness that they are more open to experience or see things. And you hear people say that their kids are talking to someone who's not there and it might just be an imaginary friend, but then they describe a deceased relative or, or grandma's been visiting me, but grandma passed away a few years before. Mm-hmm. Do you think that is true? That as as children, we don't have that, or we have something we lose as we grow older? I think there may be, I, I agree with you. I think there may be some kind of like, clean slate club, some kind of like tabula rasa effect where you're open. Maybe there are a lot of studies these days that suggest that the brain often acts as a filtering device, right? That it filters a lot out. Like we don't see the whole visible light spectrum, for example, 
dogs here more than we do things like that Mm -hmm. right and uh so in that way maybe when something like that happens when somebody is so young uh the filters aren't there yet or or maybe there's maybe those those kind of blinders uh open up in a way if something like that happens early because uh you're privy to to either an area where something like that might happen you know or or that for some reason your brain thinks that it's necessary for you to start receiving that form of information i'm not sure but what i do recognize is that some that often when when people have an experience like that early on it can have an effect later where it starts to add up um uh- and it, Mm-hmm. And and that's one experience from the age of four. But you said, and it was reported in the article with Ralph, that you lived in a haunted home from the age of six. That's right. Yeah. When I was about six years old, my family moved to this big, huge old house in Mishawaka, Indiana, near the border of Michigan. Um, and the first night we were moving in, we got there kind of late with a moving truck. Due to the timing of the move, our beds were packed almost last and they were held in place by my, my dad's old book boxes. He's an engineer. And so the, all these manuals and textbooks and things like this, tons yeah. and tons of book boxes. And so they were there to hold in place the beds. So the movers, they use these hand carts to get the book boxes out and they take them down to the basement and they just leave them in the middle of the floor near the bottom of the steps, like in pillar formation, stacked up, right? Just drop off the hand cart, go back up, get another load, right? And the next morning I wake up and my mom's downstairs and there's a commotion. She's kind of freaking out, right? Turns out she went downstairs first thing and these stacked up book boxes had been rearranged. So they were on the floor and eerily they were evenly spaced from each other in kind of like a checkerboard pattern. And she realized like I couldn't have done it. Uh, they were too heavy for me, for one thing, and I wasn't up yet. My baby sister, who was only about 18 months, obviously she wasn't going to do it. And my dad didn't do it. So at, she's she's thinking to herself, she said later, she's thinking to herself, like, what, what could that possibly be, right? And I think that's one thing about my case that that why Ralph Blumenthal, I mean, he's, he said in part, one thing that was interesting to him about the case and other people as well has been that there are other people that have corroborated elements of what I'm saying from throughout the years, you know, friends, uh, exes, uh, my mom, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, my current partner, things like that, people that don't even know each other. And so there's there's a novel element to that that's not completely unique but it's interesting but so basically in that house we'd see objects slide across counters and slide across tables right in front of us you know and there would be strange energy in the room it's kind of like shadow being type type figures um and a lot of poltergeist activity yeah and was there any and fear involved in that you, you mentioned that the experience at four there was a positive energy a sense of love what about That's these right. experiences you know honestly it's weird because i i wasn't as scared as you might think the poltergeist energy didn't freak me out so much the apparition like energy was more freaky 
what would really what what did creep me out would be waking up in the middle of the night and having either seeing some kind of like strange wispy energy in the room or having the feeling of something watching me. And of course, for a lot of kids, I mean, that's a normal association for a parent child mm-hmm. relationship that a kid's scared that there's going to be a monster in the room. But un- unfortunately, in, in my case, there there was an acknowledged <laughs> presence in the house. Yeah. And and so um, that that took over a little bit. I didn't like the idea of something being there when I was asleep. During the day, it was it was I had a an oddly okay job integrating it. Um, strangely, I think it's partially because of age. You know, I think that I had an open mind, so I'm not sure. Did you try and communicate that to your parents at any point that you were having these experiences? Um, I had I communicated a bit of it with my mom in that house, and she also had experiences in there. Um, things like she'd come in and the oven would, the oven would be blasting and the oven door would be open all of a sudden when nobody else was in the house, when I was off at kindergarten or something like that. Um, and she would reach for the car keys on the counter and they would like slide right out from under her hand as she was reaching for them. Things like that would happen. And so she was very aware and, and, I don't think that I communicated all of it because it happened so frequently and it was just kind of a condition of the house, I guess, or a condition, I guess I thought of like life in a way, because I, I didn't know anything different. You know, at such a young age, something happens and it normalizes you, you normalize to it in some way you integrate it into your worldview. Um, so I think, I don't think that I did a lot of self-reporting after a certain point in that house, but together and separately, we experienced things there. My dad denied it and for years, but he was obviously disturbed by it at the same time. Sure. And then moving on, when you were around the age of nine or 10, you uh, you were seeing gray-like beings as well, and uh, including beings standing beside your bed. Is that correct? That's right. Um my, my parents divorced in that haunted house that I was speaking of. And um, the poltergeist, that, that energy was not the reason they had bigger problems than that, believe it or not. Um, so my mom remarried and we moved to a small college town where my stepdad, my new stepdad was a professor. And that's where the first encounter that I can remember with gray like beings happened. I was about nine or 10. I was in bed downstairs. My, my bedroom was in the basement. Uh, it was a partially finished basement, and um, I was in the room on one of those old overstuffed pillows with the arms uh, that were really popular in the 80s. These, uh, here they used to call them husband pillows. Okay. Uh, often they were like corduroy and things. So I was kind of half reclined on the bed, and I fell asleep early with the lights on, and which was not totally unusual for me at the time. I think maybe partially because of the haunted energy from the prior place. Um, but so I fell asleep on, uh, on this, on this pillow, on this big overstuffed pillow. And I think that, that, uh, that me being semi reclined may have been the thing that m- made me able to remember or that I saw these beings in the first place. So I just, I woke up suddenly and uh, kind of startled with motion and 
Um, I look past the, on the far side of the room, there were two beings. Um, they were gray-ish beings. And they were about four, four and a half feet tall. The one on the left was holding like a metallic rod. It was about, I would guess, 18 inches. And maybe about the width of my finger here as an adult. Um, and this sounds a little weird and it's something that's underreported in, in texts if people read about these things often, but, or these beings often, but, um, the one on the left seemed to be hovering just over the floor. Um, the one with the rod, it, there seemed to be like a little bit of a haze between its body and the floor and and I don't know what that haze was. It's maybe I'm, I would assume it was some form of technology that, that, or some effect of some technology that allowed it to do what it was doing. I don't know. Uh, and the one on the right was on the floor. And as I kind of came to, I saw the being on, on my left, um, raising the rod towards me as the other one on the right started moving towards me. And at first I wasn't scared at first, at first I was just, it was just kind of a sense of wonder, like who the heck are these people? You know what I mean? Um, but when they didn't start communicating, when there was no back and forth and, and there was just action, the one with the rod and the one moving towards me, I got really scared really quickly. And the one on the right, it was this strange marionette motion. And I think partially the non-communication and partially that the motion was so different than how we move humans that I was completely panic stricken. But within a few seconds, I was knocked out, just, you know, passed out. And, you know, you can speculate about maybe the rod or my fear, I, but I don't, I don't have an answer for why I blacked out right then but I know that that's a feature that other people experience as well. Do you think when it comes to these, and I get thanks for sharing that, when it comes to these grey beings, you hear that there's theories that they they are like third generation artificially intelligent clones, that there's no consciousness to them, and that when you're you're having these previous experiences with you know light beings or apparitions or energy beings or even ghosts, you know, you're having some form of communication or feeling in the room, whereas you're not having that with these grey-like beings. Would you think that's a possible association, that there was nothing inside of them necessarily, almost machine-like? I think that there's a possibility of that. Yeah, there does seem to be less of... There does seem to be less of a spirit or a soul to sound kind of new age about it, but there does seem to be less going on that way on another level. And I think that that's one of the, the more scary or eerie things about them is that they do have kind of a robotic energy to them and that you don't necessarily sense the same kind of warmth that you do from almost any other kind of living being. They can communicate, but it's a very, even the way that they communicate through telepathy is a very line by line. It's almost like receiving a text or a telegram. Um, rather than a more organic form of communication. It's very hard to describe, but it's there, you know. 
Now, you, the article moves from you being at the age of 9 or 10 to, to seeing a mantis-like being in your 20s. Did your experiences stop or slow down in, in your teenage years, or did they continue? There was a period where things slowed down. Um, around when I was about 11 until about 15 or 16 years old, there was a very kind of low period. Maybe, I'll let yeah, 11 or 12 to 16 for about four or five years things really slowed down. And I don't know why that was. Um, often these things are really erratic. You know, the timing, it's hard to explain. But as soon as I got into my older teen years, um, there was a slightly different form of poltergeist kind of energy coming around and this kind of watched energy. And the visit, the night visitations uh, started picking back up again. And I'd have fragmentary memories of of being levitated or taken out of my bed and things like that yeah do you think in that age 11 to 16 especially as a young boy you're you're hitting puberty and you're having that kind of chemical imbalance it's all over the place there's potential that plays a part in it and that could be why things change afterwards had your feelings towards those experiences changed when they start back up from the age of 16 I think that there's a strong possibility. I, I've read that theory before that, that, you know, hormonal energy and adolescent energy, the body processes could somehow either help create a situation or attract a certain form of energy. You know, there's a lot of theories that way, but it's very true that there does seem to be a correlation between that kind of adolescent energy and, and poltergeist phenomena. Um, so, uh, but I, I, I'm not sure, though I do know that somewhere along those lines, the, the, what people would, would term as ET or abduction uh, cases started, situations started coming back into play. Um, and so there could just, that could be totally correlated. I mean, that those, some people have suggested, uh, including Dr. Eric Davis, I believe that, that poltergeist phenomena and ET so-called phenomena are, are often wedded together. I don't necessarily know. I think that's intriguing. Um, but I also recognize that there's, there's a lot of literature that suggests that, that grays and mantids, et cetera, um, are interested in, in our biology, especially through adolescence and and interested in our reproductive processes and things like that. So perhaps it's just total happenstance that both of these things were kind of re-triggered near the same time. I don't know. Where Did you have different feelings, uh, as I was saying as well, to your experiences as you hit 16, 17, you know, into your 20s? Was there more fear? Was there more trepidation? Was there a concern? Yeah, there was. There was a lot more fear. There's a lot more fear. And part of the reason was, is that I recognized that some of my, I would be hanging out with friends a lot more, um, getting into my late teen years, 18, 19, 20. Um, and I recognized that other people, the other friends were experiencing things along with me and, and, and seeing odd apparitions or having some kind of interpenetrating presence around um, that sometimes would would activate something moving around or in terms of 
poltergeist activity or or an actual apparition of some form and so again there's a lot of there's a lot of speculation about some subtle realms some other layer of reality where things kind of interpenetrate from i'm not sure but i recognize that some of my friends really didn't like that you know and they really didn't like that that it could be attached to me they recognized very quickly that i was i was the common denominator in these situations and i lost a few friends in in my early 20s in my late teens um because they didn't like being around that kind of energy and i couldn't blame them and so that became another layer of of fear to me the idea that that this stuff would never leave me alone or that i wouldn't be able to have meaningful relationships with people um because because of this kind of phenomena how have you coped going into your kind of life as you're at now with that knowing that it's always going to be a potential barrier in, in any form of relationship well i think in some ways with ralph's article and being kind of coaxed into coming out of the experiencer closet if you will um it kind of ripped the band-aid off a little bit you know <laughs> if somebody googles me in the future uh they're they're gonna have us there's gonna be some spoilers about what what that might be but I, I in terms of processing i think it's been great through the pandemic um that as you know, the experiencer group formed and we started doing these private confidential support groups and meetup groups for other experiencers of different forms of phenomena. And through doing that, we've been creating this worldwide network of people uh, that have had similar experiences. And so it was really a way to take the lockdowns and the work from home thing and turn lemons into lemonade for us. And uh, and and in that way, I, I feel really, really positive about the future in terms of what can be built here, what kind of dialogues can happen, just even what we're talking about today here, you and me. And I'm hopeful that people can be more open minded with each other and in in organic, loving situations. I don't think as again, like people don't have to believe me, but if they can remember back to times when their loved ones or their friends may have shared something. Maybe they saw it, said they saw a ghost. Maybe they said they saw a UFO, you know, and you're, this is a very specific audience, your podcast, but sometimes even in situations like this, people can remember back to a time where they might've blown somebody off when that person may have been sharing one of the most private and vulnerable situations that they've ever experienced. So if people can, can think back on on situations like that and 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 try to be more caring when somebody has a share like that in the future then 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 it'll be a better future for sure jay you've very nicely answered what would have been my last question of what you would advice you would give to those listening who may have had experiences but what i would have asked you before that anyway we'll swap it around is if you could go back to your younger self and have asked this of all the experiences and give yourself some advice to help you cope through the years and the experiences what would that be i think that one very practical thing would be 
you're going to, you're going to make it through it. You're going to make it through it with all your fingers and toes. You're going to make through make it through with your sanity. And, and that would be the first thing you're going to find meaningful relationships. You're going to have friends and loved ones that accept you for who you are and that they're not going to come every night. So you can turn the lights off and go to bed. I appreciate That's that. What I would say. Yeah. Jay, uh, just to wrap up, do you mind sharing with people how they can get in touch with yourself and the experiencer group if they want to do so? Sure. Um, you could you could find me through our our Twitter at at four experiencers f o r experiencers uh, on Twitter. Um, we also have an Instagram account where people could find us if they are reluctant to get on the awful Twitter beast. Um, and uh, they can also, of course, find me through theexperiencergroup.com, um, where, where I kind of live my online life and uh, many other experiencers do as well. Anybody that shows up can have a free trial for a month and, uh, and can stay on as long as they'd like. We have a little bit of vetting to make sure that we don't have trolls and other people that could be hostile to to other experiencers and it's a warm community so people can find me through www.theexperiencergroup.com as well and i'll put all the links for those in the description for this and all the other shows that we're doing as well jay it's been wonderful speaking with you and i look forward to having you back on the podcast again in the future great thank you so much for having me today it's been a wonderful dialogue thank you so much Okay, so we should be back on the podcast now, and I hope and pray you have just seen an extended interview with Jay Christopher King. Uh, again, thank you to Jay for sharing his time. Dan, so Jay talked about not only UFOs, UAP, potentially there and seeing various different beings, but he talked about poltergeist activity, as we have discussed with some of the other experiencers as well. It rarely seems that it's just one type of you know being that they see, and it can be like a like that umbrella phenomena. What's your take on, on experiencers themselves, and where is their part in this conversation for you? It's it's a question that, oh, sorry, it's a subject that is ahead of us on the road. You know, the United States government has acknowledged that there's something here, um, and the implications that over you know 70 80 years or longer in fact that they've been taking people and doing these things to them um it's it's a very hard conversation to have because like you say there's there's trauma involved and i almost think we need to get to a place where we have a really solid support structure set up to help experiences um and then there's the kind of there's a darker side of that conversation as well because as you found in a presentation that you went to it, you know, a while back now, a lot of the the experience of that person, I won't mention names, was rooted in you know childhood abuse and things like that. Yeah. So it's a really delicate area that that we just need proper psychological support for, really. Yeah. Um, recently, as well, there's a the fine line between you know mental health and the potentially you know trauma to do with experiences or effects that are left over from from any experiencers and what they've gone through and that's not to say they aren't necessarily linked 
you know, it could be the cause of mental health issues and, yeah, and having absolutely. to grow up with such a profound thing that, let's be honest, so few of us, unless you've experienced it, probably are able to comprehend or understand what goes on. Just to take a bit of a, a side sideways jump, though, on that, Dan, I wonder if, indeed, we are talking about an umbrella phenomenon. At what point, can, can you imagine, we are, we're looking to get various governments to hopefully down the line say that, there is this phenomena or we discover it alongside them that, you know, let's just go with aliens exist for, for a crude way of saying it. At what point do we then bring in, okay, so what about ghosts? Is, is that it's something that would have to because happen? Th this is kind of what I'm getting at when I talk about us not really having the language to have these discussions in a serious way yet. You know, UFO... The wrong labels. UAP, yeah, the, you know, ghosts is kind of a, a superstitious label. But I don't know, these days, if we kind of figured out that they were quantum time hiccups, I, I don't know, maybe there would be a lot more acceptance because it, it's a term that can be, you know, researched. It's not just, ooh, ghost. Scary quantum time hiccups, though, still. Scary quantum time hiccups, I like that. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I, I, I get that. And uh, and something we discuss with some of the experiencers, and, and, and I'll discuss with yourself, Dan, as well, is that it's a difficult conversation uh, as, a, as a niche in this topic to put into the mainstream, especially right now, when people who are watching this right now or listening to this right now have a vested interest in this topic, more than likely for, for some time. If they're new to the subject, fantastic. They're discovering all this and hearing new ideas and new, you know, new theories and hypotheses for the first time. Brilliant. But most people are probably already have their own ideas of what's going on, what may be happening, and things are kind of malleable now and again. It's it's a hard one for the mainstream, which is the other 99%, to take in, okay, that the US government are now looking at UFO, UFOs exist. Again, that's how the language is changing in the mainstream. And from there, what might they be to... It's a huge leap forward to then start talking about abductions, lifelong experiencers is it a genetic thing is there anything that can be done about it it's it's going from a to b to to r down the line do you know what and, i mean and is, is the, the question that they're asking at the moment because you know are they here yes we know this we, we've had confirmation what are they and their intent their motives is something that's being discussed and if it turns out that there's a bad intent then abductions become a very nefarious thing. Whereas if they've been abducting people with benevolent interests, then it will be a different conversation. Yeah. And Dan, you you asked the question, what are they? The question could be when when are they? When if I can they? do my Ah, oh, okay. But then it might just be what are they? So, you know, ignore that. But yeah, again, thank you very much to Jay for that interview. Check out, uh, hopefully you've checked out and check out the other interviews with other experiencers that will be coming up on the main podcast on the That UFO podcast we, channel as well. We should also kind of acknowledge that when we're talking about that umbrella phenomenon, um, you know, that everything kind of falls under, well, this one umbrella and has different terms across the ages. Uh, it kind of brings us to the next point where of, of a place that experiences all these different phenomena uh, in, in one geographic location. Um, Wales. Wales. <laughs> no, I, I just wanted to ruin your link. I'm sorry. That was a. I'm no, sorry. it's all good. But uh, yeah, Skinwalker Ranch. Yes. News broke today, didn't it, Dan? I say news broke today. It's just kind of gone online um, in, uh, in the last couple of days that you will see 
There's a new book coming out, Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, an insider's account of the secret government UFO program. That title alone raises eyebrows, doesn't it? Then you see the names it's attached. It's kind of a funny title, to be honest. The The name's really funny. Uh, sorry, the names are really um, great, the ones that are attached. James Delacatsky hasn't spoken. You know, Comb Kala yeah. hasn't spoken for a while. George Knapp's involved, so we know that there's going to be a lot of heavy lifting there. But yeah. skinwalkers at the Pentagon, literally, that image, just the halls filled with skinwalkers trying to do admin work, ch- make me chuckle. Well, it's, it's a better title than Rubber Duck, but we'll get to that. <laughs> um, but even I saw Stephen Greenstreet on Twitter had highlighted uh, a piece from the the blurb on the book, and it talks about the sticky portfolio. That's something we have talked about with George Knapp, Brandon Fugel, Thomas Winterton, Luella Zondo, all of those interviews available in the archives as well, folks, so you can go and check them out. But that sticky portfolio, the idea that get um guests at the ranch or officials who have visited the ranch or workers have something an entity a force that can follow them home and that blurb actually talks about those people's children being injured by this phenomenon that's quite a statement just to have out there in its own isn't it and that's not really something your children you said it well, we spoke to George Knapp, didn't we, for an interview and George mentioned I think for the first time that his wife had experienced part of the phenomenon, but he didn't obviously want to go into too much detail on that. From him visiting the ranch and spending so much time there with with Bigelow, of course, and then afterwards, that his wife had had experiences, and now we're hearing that others have as well. Thomas Winterton, who is a ranch superintendent, had also talked about how his family had also had experiences frequently, again, working at the ranch as much as he has, from this phenomenon. So it's... I think you let's separate the TV show completely because that can be divisive and the the layout of it, the the pacing of it, and the over dramatizations that can happen at times on any TV show. There is a real phenomenon going on at Skinwalker Ranch, and it's affecting people. And for this to be coming out, and Dan, I'm I'm going to steal what you'd obviously pointed out that's available in the description, right at the bottom of the description. It says, Skinwalkers at the Pentagon has been reviewed by the US Department of Defense and cleared for public release. In capitals. In capitals. So it was shouting. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What's jumping out immediately for you then, Dan? Uh, Someone else has a book coming out that will probably, you know, need reviewing by the US Department of Defense. Uh, Luis Elizondo um, is, you know, he announced a book deal a little while ago. And I expect we'll see this disclaimer there. And you've got to wonder what was cut out. I'm excited to read it because this is kind of the the origin point of a lot of what we're talking about today. Or not the origin, you know, it came way down the line uh, after, you know, the first sightings and things. But the OSAP program was that initial, initially funded seed that kind of led to all of this interest from uh, inside the Department of Defense. And then it was decided to focus on military cases. And that's where ATIP came in. So, yeah, this kind of kicked everything off. And J- James T. Lukatsky, uh supposedly got the ORSAT program running after having a very interesting experience in the, I think it was in a dining room where he could kind of see into a kitchen. And he saw something kind of shifting in the air. He describes it like a kind of tubular bells, infinity kind of twisting sign um, that no one else could see. And supposedly that was the genesis of Orsap, and that's what this book is about. 
what are you expecting to get from this? Something that's jumped out at me again from the description is that it mentions that report, and we always hear about the report that was done and put together and sent off to the Department of Defence or Defence Intelligence Agency. Do you think we're going to get anything even hinted at that was part of that report? No. Okay, this is it. This is Let's move on. <laughs> the the reason this is this book is great is because of the people involved. You know, if it was someone else kind of saying this blurb on the back of a book, I would probably pass it by as just another Skinwalker book or something like that. But even even if it's just the authors confirming events that we've all heard about through the grapevine in whispers, then it will be a very very handy reference point to kind of filling fill in essentially what is a bunch of question marks yeah awesome so we'll look forward to that uh, coming up in future and obviously i imagine or hope james colm and george themselves will be putting themselves out for some interviews at least so look forward to hopefully catching up with them at some point as well fingers crossed folks uh, one of the listeners got in touch and we want you to do that as much as possible we've had a few listeners get in touch and we're keeping some stuff for the next couple of shows as well just a heads up next week we will be focusing on crash retrievals because some online and social media including james iandoli of engaging the phenomena is looking to make it a bit of a crash retrieval week crash retrieval awareness week almost from the i was gonna say it'd be great if someone actually finds a craft during that week it, it would be good, yeah. I would be very... Well, actually, do you know what? Given what's going on recently on the UFO Twitterverse, I wouldn't be surprised if someone claimed to have found <laughs> one and, and hyped Probably. it up massively and then invited us all out to go and look at it via Twitter poll. Anyway. It's just uh, that McDonald's by Area 51. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, good marketing campaign. <clears throat> but yeah, um, Noel got in touch with us and he said, Hi, Alan. Uh, and that's right. He said, Hi, Alan. Uh, so if Noel, if you're listening... I'm going to give you autocorrect on that one. But he said, that, I was that's talking your weekend about... name. <laughs> that's a boring weekend name. No offense. <laughs> I was talking uh, about your shows to a friend and telling them the various topics that come up. And we got talking about the what if section. I remembered in one of your episodes, you posed the thought of going back in time and putting the idea of the iPhone to Steve Jobs. I don't remember this, but it sounds like something I would have. It got me thinking how we all really live in the here and now. And then I thought about what if we came back to 30 or what if we could go to 30 or 40 years from now and could see how far AI, artificial intelligence, has advanced? I'm thinking right now, AI is like a baby that we're looking at in its early years, and it's hard to imagine what it's going to look like as a fully grown 30 or 40 year old person. How much do you and Dan think we're going to have learned about AI in that time? How much will AI learn itself in that time? And how could it develop? Now, that's that's a pretty interesting point. Thank you for that one, Noel. Um, just recently, Lou Elizondo has talked about that they are working on a piece of software, which is a piece of AI, if that's the right way I'm, I'm saying that, Dan, which yep. can aid and allow us to filter the the wheat from the chaff when it comes to, to UFO or UAP footage. And that's obviously we're going to finish up on a, a looking at the rubber duck footage just to kind of finish off. But there's been a lot of discussion around that. And we talked about the Turkey UFO and uh, the space station footage we've looked at already on the show, Dan. But if you had a piece of software, you could run these videos through that took in all sorts of different formulas and calculations to tell you, nope, this is something truly anomalous or it's something that's not worth looking at. That would be a huge step, wouldn't it? It would be amazing. We we could take all the historical data and just push it through that filter. And 
it, it would show us I, I mean think think about um you know i don't know if people listening have ever had a health band and after about a month it starts telling you oh you know you're on track to put on weight or to lose weight or you've done less steps than last month that that's an example of building trends through data and if it can do something as as complex as tell you your you know your your bodily kind of uh oh, what's the word i'm looking for vital signs mm -hmm. um then it can definitely separate oh that's a balloon from that's something a bit more mysterious and needs a bit more of a look i think with, that leads us oh go on i was just going to say with, with ai at the moment we're kind of in its infancy what what a lot of people call ai these days is actually uh what we call a neural net which is just a bunch of decisions being made you know is this the shape of a dog yes no you, you know seeing it matches um whereas when we talk about ai we we generally mean that kind of general intelligence ai where you could have a conversation with it and it can think for itself and where we will get to a point where it kind of hits this exponential curve and it'll get really scary because we'll we'll start not understanding the decisions the computer is making and at that point you you know there, there would be a few philosophers arguing that we'd been surpassed and that was the moment that should lead us nicely onto the the footage that dropped. We saw it hyped online by Andy, who goes under NYUAP or on social media. And whether you liked how he went about it or not, Andy obtained uh, what seemingly is an official video from the Department of Homeland Security, a FLIR video of an object that is being tracked for around 40 minutes to an hour over the, the border of the US and Mexico somewhere. Now, it's labelled as the rubber duck footage, which straight away is not the best way to label anything if you want it to be taken seriously. It, it, it has a resemblance of a rubber duck, I suppose, if you've already seen it called the rubber duck UFO. I don't think that's what immediately would have jumped out to me, to be honest. But it's that no, paradoxia that someone's told you it's rubber duck footage. And you go, oh, yeah, I suppose I can see that. It could look like a flying iron, you know, like a steam iron or any number of things but that's what it's been labeled so straight away that that's not helped at all i'm going to share just so people can see the the footage as we as we discuss it dan but you know a, a few a few weeks has now passed or a week or so what are your your thoughts dan on on the footage itself and what we're kind of looking at it's a really interesting piece of footage not not just because of what it contains but because of what it kind of forces the community to learn you know we, we've learned about relative temperatures rather than FLIR being just detecting temperature it's more this is hotter than this temperature or this is cold than this temperature as opposed to signifying it's absolutely freezing um and also i i really like when these videos come out and you kind of see people starting to plot you know all the gps points and and figuring out if it's parallax and how fast the object's actually moving and things like that and Based on all of that work, it seems fairly unremarkable, if I'm honest. But I, I would kind of say that we shouldn't judge too soon. There is an organization doing an analysis of it. That organization is full of actual experts who know what they're looking at and don't have to, you know, learn learn on the fly. Um, so I would wait for them for, for the professional word on that. Absolutely. I would never claim to know exactly what i'm looking at on this screen i can see speeds and altitudes and all that kind of stuff but i, I can't use the maths to work out exactly what i'm looking at interestingly dan this this is a one hour long video the the object which you can see now on the screen round about the cursor comes in around the 20 minute mark so they were already filming 
whatever they were filming. Uh, many have have claimed it's potentially a a craft that's looking for the craft that's actually doing the filming is looking for kind of drug runs along the border, stuff like that. Um, but it being me, in Tucson, that's the right spot, right? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, and and for me, we're looking at a drone here. Um, you can see the object's got a base, which would be the drone. And I know there's been a lot of talk. Again, I am I'm bowing to the experts here, but I have had people mention that there are ways that you could mask the temperature of these things. There are various like thermal thermal acrylic pa uh, paints or sprays, and we also I think Dan you had mentioned to me on, on the podcast itself that the the object the flare camera sets uh, a default temperature, so the object below could be a temperature that this camera just isn't set to look for. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. the The example that was given was if this is a border patrol and they were looking for human temperature objects so they could find people crossing the border then the fact that this object is white cold means that it's just colder than the human body temperature which is about 98 degrees yeah and, and i've seen people again comment on the fact that well it can't be a drone because of the distance it travels now if you just do a little bit of looking online and a little bit of research into some of the more expensive drones bear in mind if this is a drone belonging to a drug cartel They've, they've got a pretty decent budget to spend on and customizing drones for this kind of stuff, I'd imagine. You know, they're not just sticking up a, a £100 or $100 effort into the sky. You can see that you can have multiple operators along a line of sight. So you could literally have people spaced tens of miles apart that pick up the object as it goes along and take over control of it to almost do like a, a baton race you would do in your school and you're passing along the baton using different controls as well. And um, you, you can just program these things as well. You know, we GPS exists and you can just say, I want you to go from this point to this point and that's it. And you just let it fly and you wouldn't need an operator at all. If it gets caught, no one's, you, you know, kind of giving away the signal uh, for where the, the origin of the, the control is coming from. So that yeah. would be the smart way to do it. You know, just an automated drone that is masked with ir and it would just look strange to us yeah and again part of it for me as well is the fact it's came out via andy you've got to give them the, the props and, and well done for getting this out it's clearly caused a level of stress and and you know it ate bollock basically for lack of a better phrase uh, to get <laughs> it out there and a lot of you know issues online via various social media channels but for me it doesn't show anything incredible that is just a solid object. It doesn't look like the point above moves at all. That can just be some kind of antenna that would be on there. That's that's perfectly plausible given what we're looking at. So I think in time we're going to find out that either nothing at all comes of this or the people reviewing it can really something to say. No, it's more than likely a, a drone. That That's pretty much it. So Yeah. And it, it, it's a good example of why we need that AI. And Lou, Lou Elizondo gave a statement on the footage. Um, he said, unfortunately, I'm unable to comment further than to me at the superficial level to be a small cluster of party balloons tied together at the base with one balloon having a slightly longer string than the others. And so it keeps separating from the rest. However, that is only my initial perspective. And that is why we are developing good AI so we can be 100% sure in cases like this. Do I get to be really cocky and call Lou out for saying it was balloons and see I'm almost guaranteeing him? Because <laughs> um, that looks like a pretty solid base. But I will again bow to any and all experts in this and thank you for everyone because people did send over opinions on it and also why they think it is what it is. So plenty of names out there discussed. But as always, we'll leave that to the experts. 
that is all we have left for the time this week, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you to everyone at KGRA Digital Broadcasting for hosting us yet again. We look forward to coming back next week. Next week, Dan, we've got Graham Rendell, our friend. He is an author. He has a book out on the Foo Fighters of World War II, so there will be an interview with Graham. We will also be... Uh, talking about crash retrievals it's crash retrieval week like i mentioned before so we'll be doing a little bit of digging on that so if you want to send over any thoughts opinion at all on that tag us on twitter at ufo uap am or email ufo uap am at gmail.com on the main podcast you're going to find out if you search an interview with paulo gazardi who is one of the guys over at icer and one of the heads of project titan discussing the work that they are doing following up on our interview with Tim McMillan as well. So please don't miss out on all that, folks. Dan, thank you for your time. Thank you. It's great to be on KGRA. KGRA. Look forward to seeing you all next week, folks. And again, hi to everyone that's joined us for the chat and the premiere too. That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access the shows ad free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram that UFO podcast of course on Twitter it's at UFO UAP AM and again folks as always keep looking up you never know what you might see